Greetings and welcome to the second episode of the Speak Hurts podcast, a show where I delve into the making of classic records and the people who contributed to them. The original Speak Hurts website was created in 2013, and I still occasionally do Q&A interviews for that when I'm not doing the same for other sites like Vintage King or APM Music. But the podcast will be the main Speak Hurts format moving forward, so I hope everybody enjoys it. Today's guest is Tony Hoffer, a producer and mixer who made his name in the 2000s, working alongside artists like Beck, Phoenix, Air, The Kooks, and M83. He played on some of the records, mixed others, and produced a lot of them, so I made a list of different tracks, and we went through as many of them as we could, alongside talking about his work in general. This episode was recorded in September of 2023, so please excuse if some of the questions towards the very end are a bit dated. That's just me and Tony talking about his work for the end of 2023. So I hope you enjoy the conversation, and thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you for being here, Tony. It's nice to be speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. One of your more notable first credits was with Beck on Midnight Vultures, and you've talked about how that involved you using multiple samplers to create demos during that time. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the Roland S550, EMU E6400, EMU E4XT, Kurzweil K2000, and EMU SB1200. Why did you have those five, and what did each of them do that was unique from the other, and which one got used the most? So the the first sampler that I ever bought was the the Roland S550, and I bought that because, you know, it was really cheap. <laughs> the price was really good. Little did I know, it ended up being an amazing sounding sampler. It was, man, I want to say they're 12, they were 12 bit, so they were a little... They, they just had a little bit of grit to it and a little grainy and a, and a bit of grit. And the filters on it were amazing as well. I didn't even really know about that sort of stuff, like filters and how one, you know, why one sampler would sound better than the other. So, um, but that was the one that I got first. And so I started doing everything with that. And it was all floppy based, which I just pulled out of my, the SP1200, which I still have to this day. But yeah, the S550 was the first one and it sounded amazing, but I was only able to get, I forgot how much sampling time. It was very limited sampling time. So then I bought the the E6400, the EMU E6400, which had more sampling time and a different sound. And I started to understand like, oh, maybe I need something that's a little better in the low end or a little better quality. I've already got kind of a cool lo-fi thing or not, not lo-fi, but you know, gritty thing. So then I got the E6400 and that allowed me to do more stuff. And then I got the Kurzweil K2000, which was kind of a whole other sound and a whole other thing, much punchier, very clean, but very punchy. And then I got the other Emu because I needed more, um, just more outputs and, and more stuff. You know, I was doing a lot of sampling and and then the SP1200, which is kind of a whole other thing. That's that's like a sampling drum machine. So I started doing more, dr you know, a lot of um, like beat stuff with that and chopping samples with that. That's very lo-fi. That's 12 bit, 10 seconds of sampling time. It causes a lot of character to be 
built into the the beats or productions that you're using it with. So all in all, like they all worked really well together. They all complemented each other. And a lot of it, honestly, was just based on the need of needing either more sampling time or more outputs to 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 be able to split things out across a console. Got it. So which one got used the most? The S550 eventually got phased out because it was annoying having to have the the rack mount thing plus the TV monitor. So it was um that was the first to go and the one that probably got used the most would be the E6400 and the SB1200. I think those two really complemented each other really well. And then I started getting into this thing, which I haven't really talked about much, but it was called Sample Cell. And Sample Cell was something that DigiDesign made, or which became Avid, it's the company that makes Pro Tools. They made a sampler that was, it was essentially like a card that you'd plug into your computer. And that gave me, I wanna say eight outputs. I had two cards. I had two of them at one point. So I either had eight or 16 outputs or, or four or eight outputs. I can't remember the configuration, but but that allowed, oh no, no, it probably came, yeah, it probably came out of the Pro Tools interface outputs is, is what it was, yeah. But that basically allowed us to sample in the computer and kind of have a sampler within Pro Tools. And that became quite handy for, for a lot of things. And that didn't really have much of a sound. It was very neutral sounding, but the sacrifice with that was it was very time efficient. So that would get used for things where we, we you know, if I, if, I need, if I knew I needed to move really fast with something, then I would use that. But yeah, but all the other samplers, they all had a sound and, and a vibe and, and they're all super unique. Okay. So the sound of samplers has always been a point of interest to me because when you want to recreate the sound of 90s, early 2000s records, you're, in a, you're almost inevitably forced to pay attention to that. And um, I found that the sound of particular samplers is something that's very much overlooked when it comes to production analysis. They just assume because everybody uses Ableton now that, oh, pitch down whatever but actually the pitch down and up function in almost every sampler sounds very different and affects the frequency content so if i were to let's say mention each of the samplers would you may perhaps you would remember a record that you use that on either exclusively or the most yeah sure yeah yeah so the s uh 550 so that one i'm trying to think i think by the time i started working with beck i wasn't really using that one quite as much it would be for very specific things which would have been like pads so essentially making a having a sound that was a long a long sound and then um making like a single note let's just say some texture and then making chords from that single note and each note would be pitched lower or higher than whatever the source note was so that was really good at doing that it was already kind of a lo-fi sampler. So whenever you started messing with pitch, you would get all these cool artifacts, especially if you're doing drastic stuff. But I'd have to, I can't really think if I use that much on Midnight Vultures. Like with, with Midnight Vultures, it was a lot of stuff that was already there at, in Beck's studio. And then some things at my studio, like processing some things. So, and I can't remember if the S550 got used much on that. And then I was kind of slowly phasing it out because it's it was a bit time consuming to use that one. Okay. The EMU E6400? That would have been all over Midnight Vultures and um, probably some some of the other earlier productions I did around that time, which I'd have to look back <laughs> and see what they were. But 
the, both emus much better, just whatever, whatever they had going on with the, how it processed pitch much less of that grittiness and that aliasing. So if you wanted to, it, it just kept the sound and the tone more truer to what it originally was when you pitched it up, up or down. Um, whereas with the S550, it would kind of break up and do aliasing. Okay. And the Kurzweil K2000? Kurzweil was also good, really good quality. Um, to me, the Kurzweil had sounded a little brighter and it had, it just was a little punchier as well. I had the sampling version of it. So, um, yeah, but it seemed like whenever I put kicks or snares in that thing, they were, they just seemed a little snappier versus on the, the emu or the Roland, they would be a little smoother or warmer or, you know, and all, all great. But if I wanted something to be like really snappy, I would put, I would put it, I'd use the K, the K2000 Kurzweil. Okay, that's fine. We all know what the SP-1200 sounds like, so we're all good with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll say with, with the SP-1200, like that, just so people know, like that is the sound of early hip-hop. That and the MPC-60, that, like the SP-1200 is, that is Public Enemy, that is NWA, all the early Cypress Hill tracks, like that punchy, grainy, it, it's awesome. Of all the samplers, that's the one that I still have to this day and still use. Even with only 10 seconds of sampling time, 12-bit, floppy disks. It's an absolute pain to use. But um, but yeah, there's nothing that comes close. There is no emulation. There is no plug-in. There's no software that will do what that does. But there is the Rossum recreation. Yeah, there's a couple There's a couple really cool recreations. I haven't heard them, but they, they seem really cool. If the electronics are true to the original, then it, it's probably good, you know? Um, but I can't speak to them. I haven't, I haven't heard them, so I don't know. Okay, so let's take a look at some of the tracks on Midnight Vulture, That at least the ones that you're credited with. You can tell me if the credits are wrong. So what I have here is Mixed Business, the second single. How much of your original demo is in that? That was, um, there was no demo. None of these songs that I recall had a demo. It was literally grabbing through a crate of records and just layering up samples, manipulating samples, just trying to do some cool stuff with samples and building songs around that. So with, with that one, it started with the with the beat, like the drum beat, and then that would have been probably from one record. And then another record would have been the horn, the big chunk of the music where, where, where that's coming from. It's like horns, guitar, there's other drums and stuff in there. Um, that's something that I would have really chopped up and I likely would have used an emu sampler or sample cell. I can't remember on that. The drums in particular are quite uh, noteworthy. Um, I don't know if you remember where they came from as far as either the sample or if they were programmed. Um, they were programmed and I don't remember where they came from. That's interesting that they're programmed because they sound like there's space between the the hits. So you would think that it was a loop of some sort. They don't truncate the way some program stuff do. I mean, essentially everything gets programmed, you know, like, well, no, I shouldn't say that. Sometimes I'll use a loop, grab a bar, one or two bars and just have that loop. But other times it, the, the source is great, but the pattern is not right. So you got to just sample it, chop it, play it, you know, reconfigure it. And so that's, that's what I would have done with that. 
So you got these intro space effects. Do you know where those are coming from? Are those being played in a synth? Are those being taken from a sample CD or generated some other way? Um, no, those would have been created. Those would have been probably either Beck or Roger Manning playing it with a synth. And I probably ran it through some effects. Sounds like things are heavily distorted. So it may have been run through an amp or some pedals. And it's pr it probably was the kind of thing where we would set up some synths and effects chains and just start experimenting and just run the track and just have Roger or Beck just play. And 99% of what would go down would, would not be great. I mean, it'd be great, but, you know, we're also just trying to find that those real juicy bits that just line up so perfectly and which is going to be one or two percent of what goes down so a lot of it is skill and then there's some luck you know with with that so the guitars in that opening section is uh played by either roger or beck the ones panned left or right um no that's those are samples i can't remember what um what that was it's probably online somewhere but it would have been a record that either beck had or i had and you know we would just drop the needle around and just try to find the something you know try to land on something that's kind of cool and like oh wait hold up what was that and play it again and go back and yeah that one bar there and it, it would not have sounded like that because that that's been severely um manipulated and flipped around and you know do you remember what the vocal mic was Probably an SM58. <laughs> yeah, a Shure 58. Him on the back of the couch singing, speakers blasting. That's pretty much how we did all the vocals on, on Midnight Vultures. Some, there, there were a couple songs where they were, um, we needed like a, a, better, a better vocal sound than that. So we, you know, with a nicer mic and all that, headphones. But for the most part, it was, yeah, it was 58. Which I, you know, I do, I do use 57s and 58s every now and then on vocals they, they definitely i do like that sound it's definitely like a, a you know it's kind of a, a lower quality type of thing but it, it definitely has an a, a cool attitude do you remember where the record was mixed it was mixed at nrg studios in north hollywood california okay uh we'll do one more track from midnight vultures which is milk and honey i don't know if you did that one but you're credited so so the first 15 seconds have these very frenetic drums, and I'm wondering where they came from. There's a lot of energy in them. Wow. Okay. Okay, so what I'm recalling from that, so that there's sort of like a crescendo sound effects thing. I, I used to do sound effects design for like video games, um, museum installation, kiosks, commercials, that sort of thing. So I had a ton of sound effects and and loved building atmospheres and 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 all that. So that that whole beginning crescendo, that big swell, that's something that I probably did near the end of the whole thing. Like, oh, why don't we have the song start like this? And so I built this little building bit in the front. And then the the drums are samples. It sounds like they're from a sample that something, again, we found on a record that I would have cut up. And it sounds like that I added additional sounds to the drums that were already doing that on the sample, but they probably were, were a bit too soft. 
on the actual sample. And so I supplemented those drums with new sounds. Well, those sounds being percussive in nature to layer under the drums? or Yeah, same. Yeah, just different additional kicks and snares to layer in the same places as the kicks and snares on the sample that I had already chopped up. Okay. So the amount of energy that's in all of that, I'm wondering how much of that is attributed to something like the drum layering versus stuff done during the mixing, like compression or saturation. Like if you were to play the original non-mixed version, would it retain, would it still have that? It would probably be punchy because I'm probably using punchy samples and in, and I'm also, you know, I'm layering samples. So it, it's going to, it's going to be punchy, but for sure the, you know, the mix would have amplified that as well. All right. So I, before we look at some other records, I want to talk about something that's always plagued me in my attempt to deconstruct music that predates like 2006, 2007. Because um, once the digital revolution kind of picks up it, 07, 08, with you see things like Fruity Loops becoming more frequent with younger people, Spectrosonic stuff like Omnisphere kind of is in a class of its own by 2009, 10. And by 11, 12, Ableton is established. Waves plugins are generally becoming better. Um, but and then from that point onwards, I find that things start to sound more two-dimensional and sometimes ar arbitrarily louder. Um, and the 3D spaciousness of the 90s and the early 2000s starts to disappear. And I don't really think we've seen it since, maybe except in some very rare occasions. Um, I've made it a point to ask a lot of people about what made that sound possible. And what I found, unfortunately, is that most producers and engineers from that period, though they have these acclaimed resumes and they have great musical sensibility, they don't seem to have really been paying attention to the technical composition of audio or sound in their work, and they seem to have largely been the beneficiaries of where the technology was at the time. But if you ask them why an Alanis Morissette album sounds the way it does, or why no one's been able to recreate the sound of Daft Punk's discovery since, they don't really have an answer. They might just talk about things like tape compression or vintage gear, but it's largely just talking points. So if I wanted a sound from that era, I don't know that I can find places that can actually recreate it. So from a technical perspective, what do you think has been lost in our signal chains of today as opposed to 20, 25 years ago? Um, it, it's it's hard to say like if something's actually been lost. I think it's I think it's just more different. And that kind of 2D, 3D thing, for for me, like that's something that I, I as well have always been very conscious of that. I, I feel like with with my productions and mixes today, which are predominantly in the box. But to me, a mix or a production is not done until there is that depth thing happening where you can hear that separation. Now, one thing that I will say is in some ways it can be achieved. It's just that it's different. The other thing is that the way that a lot of music, especially pop music is put together, there's sort of a need and want that the market has. And so if the market is needing and wanting a certain thing, that's what people that are making pop music, not so much myself, I'm not really in that realm, but if you're, if you're, if that's the world that you're in, you're trying to come up with things that will satisfy that market and to follow, you're following those trends as closely as possible. I'm personally not a big fan of that because I don't, I don't like chasing trends. That's, it's, it's never worked for me, you know? I've, I always prefer like just make really good music that stands on its own and has its own sonic identity. Just try to get in through the back door. That's essentially, that's what I've always done. But I think what happens is if a lot of 
Taylor Swift, Post Malone, like what, whatever, whatever the big artists are doing, other people are going to do stuff similar to that. So if the stuff is sounding kind of two-dimensional, that's probably how things are going to sound. And people aren't going to really be thinking much about the dimensional thing. With that said, yeah, man, those records back in the day sound really good, but there's a lot that don't sound really good as well. You know, I could rattle off a bunch of records that that suck, that were made on tape, that were made on a console, recorded in really amazing studios. So there's a lot of really bad stuff as well. But, you know, there's also a lot of really good stuff that was recorded to 16-bit, 44-1K. You know, OK Computer was 16-bit, 44-1. Sounds great, even today. Daft Punk, Homework, love that album. Such a huge influence on me and Discovery. But um, but that one in particular, because there was nothing that it's sounded like that before that. But keep in mind the arrangements of those songs, which which I think plays a big part of of the sound of that album. There's really not much going on. There'll be a drum machine, which I think they used an SP1200 quite a bit. So, but there'll be some kind of rhythmic thing going on. There'll be a bass of some sort. There'll be some kind of other weird sound. They use an MS20 synth, Korg MS20 quite a bit. And there could be a sample that's maybe in the, the SP1200, or maybe they use an Akai sampler as well. And then maybe a little vocal. And that's pretty much the palette, you know? So it, it leaves plenty of space for um, that dimensional thing that you're talking about. And also space for the low end to, to be big. That plays a big part in it. And I think you can do that with, with today's modern gear, whatever you're using, Pro Tools, Fruity Loops, Ableton, Logic, whatever. Like... I think you can definitely do that if you are very mindful to keep your arrangements minimal. You know, another thing that could be inter- that could be part of what uh, and look man, like records were made on consoles, predominantly on consoles back in, you know, the 80s, 90s, and consoles definitely do cause a shape to happen around your track. If you have again, 21 tracks or or whatever it is running through a channel of an API console or a Neve console or an SSL console or or whatever. When I was starting off, I was using a little a Mackie console. And the thing everyone said it sounded like crap, but some of the mixes I did on that, they sounded pretty good. They sounded all right, you know? But the reality is when you when you split your tracks over every channel on that console, it's gonna cause a shape to happen. And when you run it through the stereo bus of that console, it's gonna cause a shape. So um we don't have that as much now. I find they're a bit, nowadays, to me, they're a bit limiting for mixing with with how I work now, particularly with low end. I can get more low end with the way I do things now versus when I was with on the consoles. And I was typically on like an API console and then sometimes Neve consoles and then uh, like vintage Neve consoles. And then other times, especially if I was working in the UK or France, I'd be on a Neve VR, which is kind of more of like a, at the time it was kind of a more of a modern Neve. So it had like a lot of busing and, you know, kind of like an SSL, but it, with, it was made by Neve. But um, yeah, it's just I, I, going back on a console would be very hard for me now, I feel. There are emulations of, of consoles and things, but I don't, it, I personally don't really use them. If I did, I'd only be using it because I just like the sound that it did. I wouldn't actually think that it's going to make it sound like it's being run through a Neve console because it's not going to do that. It's not, I don't think it's possible to, to model that, you know, there's it's so complex, but it's possible to model something and get, have, have some plugin where it just makes cool 
makes it sound cool in certain circumstances and and that's cool but yeah so i think that's something that would be different i think also the speakers that a lot of people were using back in the 90s were predominantly ns10s you know and i think low end as well was was we we went a little bit lighter on the low end back then compared to now the need and want is more low end and um in some ways less of a mid-range focus back then things were de- definitely had more of a mid-range focus like in the 80s and 90s probably because of those ns10s and and just the mediums on where the music was mostly being heard like on the radio you know you you, you want to hear that mid-range stuff like your vocal your snare your main whatever guitar or mid-range synth whatever's doing the chords all that stuff's got to come through that may have had a big impact on the sound how how music has changed and with the, the development of speaker technology and um yeah that's interesting because i i did want to ask that if somebody wants you to do for them what you did for say phoenix or air albums or they're just in love with what what was back then is that going to be a challenge for you because you might have the same drum machines and whatnot but if we look at things like texture density of sound the placements of the transients and the front to back depth overall upfrontness of some sounds i think a lot of fans or casual listeners or even aspiring artists they don't know what's causing what and the, the music that's going through so many signal chains sometimes even the artists or the producers can't pinpoint 20 years later what caused what they just have the benefit of oh it sounds good uh, so what are you going to do when somebody comes to you and says, I want my stuff to sound like Phoenix Alphabetical or Air or something like this? Um, with, with Phoenix Alphabetical, I mean, again, very minimal palette. And the drums were, for the most part, a drum machine. My, my sequential circuits drum tracks, which I have, which I still have and use, those were, for the most part, the drum tracks. And the, the drums, which a lot of things are based around, that, that drum machine does have a certain sound to it. But again, yeah, it's very minimal. It was done to Pro Tools, not tape. It was mixed to tape. It was mixed to quarter-inch tape, actually. I don't know. I I did something recently with with a band called Chromio. This is maybe, I don't know, a a year and a half ago or so. They were doing this song for something, and they wanted me to, to go in and do it in the studio, mix it on a desk, the whole thing. So we went into a studio where I've done a bunch of work, Studio 3 at Sunset Sound, beautiful room amazing console like it's one of the best but it was just so hard and i felt the whole time like man if we could go back to my studio i could really get this thing just banging like i i know i I really could like it sounds good now but um and it came out cool to me it was it was very humble you know i could definitely have it be more i don't know forward more pushing more whatever but um but then you know what that maybe is the thing that's you know because i was using that all that gear the the desk the outboard that they had there at sunset sound that's and that's what we would have done with alphabetical and with air and with whatever you know and yeah those records they're maybe not as compressed and to your point yeah maybe maybe that's part of it now you've got like you could put a hundred compressors across your entire mix on it you could put three compressors on every track on a mix now. Back in the day, maybe we only had three really key compressors, like really good compressors, like 1176 and LA-2A and maybe, I don't know, 33609 or whatever. So you had to be careful where you used your best bits of gear. You know, something good's going to go on the vocal, something good's going to be used for the drums and maybe for the bass. And so, yeah, you, you had some limitations in that regard. Certainly. 
let's look at, few, at a few of your other past things. Um, you ended up working with Air on 10,000 Hertz Legend, as I've heard, uh, because they liked your drums that you did on a soundtrack album called Logan Sanctuary. So there's this thing about your drums that a lot of people have noted as being exceptional. And I had to go looking for the track that might have been on Logan Sanctuary that earned you such strong praise. I'm not sure which it is, but I do think that Metropia was quite notable. I'm wondering about that. I was expecting something maybe akin to the Phoenix stuff with like punchy drum machines, but it ended up being more like acoustic drums, kind of almost like Zero Seven, like the, the down tempo group kind of stuff. Yeah, so that that's Brian Reitzel on drums, and he he an amazing drummer. And by the way, Logan Sanctuary, I believe, does not exist on Spotify, but it was essentially like a fake soundtrack that Roger Manning, Brian Reitzel, and Jason Faulkner set out to do. And they're like, let's make a, a fake soundtrack to a movie that never existed called Logan Sanctuary. And so they made all these songs mostly they're instrumental maybe they're all instrumental i can't remember it's been many years since i've heard it and yeah and they brought me in to record a bunch of stuff record you know definitely all the drums a bunch of keyboards guitars bass and then mix it there was no budget for it there was there was no label it was just people making just trying to make some cool stuff you know and so yeah those drums we were at a studio called the bomb factory in la in burbank I actually had a room there that I rented that was just like a basic room where, where all my gear was. And the main room of that studio, they had a Trident A-Range in there, which is a beautiful console. Again, a whole other thing. We were talking about API EQ, SSL EQ, Neve EQ, Mackie EQ. Then there's the A-Range EQ, which is a whole other thing. You know, it's kind of an unusual type of EQ and the preamps sound interesting. They you know, have a different sound. So we were recording everything on that and it was great. And so I recorded the drums on that A-Range and it's, it's basically just very dry drums. You know, the room was, you can kind of hear some of the room sound. To me, I would call that a medium room sound. Like when I'm, if I'm talking to somebody about drums, um, I would say that that would be a medium room sound, as opposed to a completely bone dry room sound, which is usually what I do. But so that'd be a medium room sound, drums, you know, towels on the drums, lots of tape. And yeah, that's, that's basically the deal on that. Okay. On that particular track, is there compression on those drums that's contributing to the pumping sort of feeling? There probably would have been a little bit of compression. I don't I don't use much compression when I'm recording drums because I, I don't want to kill the transient, particularly from the kick or snare. Sometimes I will put a little bit though. I, and back then I was probably doing like an 1176 on the kick and maybe maybe or maybe not on the snare, but but on the kick often I would put a little bit of compression just to give it a little umph, you know. But being mindful not to kill the transient on it and and same with the snare i don't want it to sound papery i want it to have a good attack um but with when i went to mix it i probably would have used some compression and and actually that would have been mixed on my mackie console funny enough let's look at air 10,000 hertz legend um 
there's a track on there called Radian, uh, which we can be observed a progenitor to the sound that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross popularized on the Social Network movie. So I'm wondering about the intro synth, if you remember what that was. It's very deep sounding. I think that intro synth is an MS-20, Korg MS-20. Just like the filter on it sounds like an MS-20 to me, but I could be wrong. That little vocal that comes in. That was a singer that was recorded and then we pressed it to vinyl. We went to, I think Alex Gopher, who's like a, an amazing mastering engineer, pressed the vinyl for us. We, we walked over to his mastering, to, to where he was working. Um, and I'm forgetting the name of, of that place. It was a really cool studio in Paris. They had an API, beautiful vintage API console from like the 60s. And we took the record, went back to the, to the studio, plus 30, hopefully I'm saying it right, put it on, put the record on a turntable, and then Jean Benoit, basically played it with his hand, just turned the turntable, the platter as it's called, with his hand. It's kind of a lower pitch. It's it's being played slower than than what the actual recording was because he's just doing it manually. And he was kind of playing it, slowing it down, speeding it up just to have things kind of land, uh, certain parts of the melody to land at certain points in time the way that he wanted it to. But um, but yeah, that's that's what that voice is anybody's wondering interesting and when the vocal comes in at one minute uh there's some kind of reverb on it do you would you remember what that is um yeah it's cool i'm gonna say is a it's a plate maybe i may have run it through a plate it was at plus yeah, it was the the Neve VR room there. But I had so much stuff there. Um, there was a DP, an, a um, an Insonic DP4, which is like a multi effects unit that was around, and and it, so I would use that sometimes. But I don't know. It kind of sounds like a plate to me. It doesn't sound digital. And then lastly, there's a harp thingy that comes in at 240 at the, around the 240 mark. Is that actually being a real harp, or is it something you're pulling from a synth module or some kind of a module? What a cool, it, it's a cool song. I've not heard this in, in quite a while, but yeah, it's cool. Yeah, that was a harp. We um, we, we hired this, this little girl, this very short girl came in. She brought her harp, which I think she traveled on the Metro with it. And she, she brought this like massive harp and yeah, it was cool. It was, uh, we recorded harp. We, you know, that, I think that's really the only way to, to do something like that, to, to get a bespoke performance of what you want you've just got to get someone to come in and play it and and not use samples i probably recorded multiple passes of her doing that and then i ran it through some effects it sounds like as well all right and so most of that album was done at plustrant recording and mix wise yeah it was recorded uh it was recorded at another studio the like the basic 
the the initial tracking was done at another studio that I believe was was Air's studio, and then we went to a a studio. Gosh, what was it called? Atlas or I don't I don't remember. But there was some other studio where we did a, a lot of overdubs and sound experimentation, sound processing, um, you know, additional overdubs. There was a bunch of instruments there that were part of the studio. So, we were, you know, organs and some, some, a lot of cool stuff. So we were, we were using a lot of that studio's gear for, for additional bits on, on the songs. So I guess Phoenix comes along soon after, uh, United. Um, I think you met them at the Jules Holland show you'd said once and then produced alphabetical. So let's just quickly look at Everything is Everything, where you have these acoustic guitars in the beginning. I, I guess it, it might be a stretch to ask you to remember the model, but uh, is this just the case of him standing in front of a mic and, and strumming, or is there anything interesting going on to achieve that sound in the beginning? Things are gonna change, and not for better. Don't know what it means to me, but it's hopeless, hopeless. Gotta get you home, could be with anyone I think of what I've done, you know it all The guitar, the type of guitar, I don't remember what that was I think what I may have done with that is recorded the guitar and then sampled it in, in the SP-1200 and then played it in because it's it's really punchy and, and I think it, that's quite possibly what, what I did the beginning of it and also some of the percussion there's actually another sampler that i have that i, I haven't really mentioned that I, I kind of forgot about which was used on this song it's a casio sk1 which is like a little cheap maybe 8-bit sampler so that swelling sound that at the beginning that was something that i sampled into the sk1 and then hit the key you know hit play and then a lot of the percussion diggy diggy i think i also had and playing that from the SK-1 or the SP-1200, I can't remember. The, the SK-1 might have been used. That that was used quite a bit on that that album. They And then they bought one. They loved it so much. They, they bought one called the SK-5 that kind of came in near the end of the record. And and the drums, I can't tell if they're real or fake. I mean, real or uh, synthesized. Is that the drum machine or? Man, I want to say that the kick is the drum tracks, but the hat and snare are um, my buddy Alex Lacasio, who came in to play some drums and percussion on these songs. And what we had Alex do was, like that that doesn't sound like a drum track snare to me. I think that's an acoustic snare, but I think that's his hi-hats. So I think what we did was we did hat and snare on this song and used the sampled kick from the drum tracks. And, and I think that's what we're hearing. Other songs we would have him play hi-hat, like only hi-hat. And yeah, and some other songs he'd play hat and snare. Um, when the chorus comes in, there's this electric guitar that's doing some simple riff, ding, 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 something like that. Do you remember how that was achieved? Is that just Thomas playing? That's probably Christian, who was playing that. Christian. Thomas, I don't think, played much guitar, if any. Christian, that, that sounds like maybe his part. Hopefully, if Bronco played it, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's either Christian or, or Bronco that played that. But I want to say 
Christian because that sounds kind of like his. He would come up with that kind of stuff. Do you remember where the album was mixed? Yeah, well, it was recorded at um, Sound Factory Studio B, and then it was mixed at Sunset Sound, which was a couple blocks away in Studio One. There's one more track on there called I'm an Actor, which is very interesting, very sort of dramatic and movie-like. I'm wondering about the bell tree stuff in the beginning, what sounds like that. I think those bells, those are from Alex. He he brought like three boxes of percussion. He he played a lot of percussion on all these songs because we had the drum tracks doing a lot of the drums and then we just wanted a human feel on the songs, but we wanted to keep the drum tracks. And then some songs he would play, there's there's maybe two or three where he would play hi-hat and then sometimes he'd play hi-hat and snare. So, but there's a lot of percussion and I think he had some, some of those bells and probably did a, it sounds like two passes and then I pan them in stereo. That's why it's stereo. Very interesting. Um, and then you have these layered acoustic and electric guitars that's doing the da 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 da. I'm wondering how this gets so heavy. Is it because of you're compressing them in a bus or? I don't know. I think it's heavy because everything's doing the same thing at the same time. There's synth bass, probably two acoustic guitars, two electric guitars. I, I probably chopped everything to, to be super tight. So everything's hitting like right at the same time with the drums. So the kick, the bass, the guitars, everything's just like bum, ba bum, 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 you know, kind of unnaturally. It'd be very hard to play it like that, you know, to, to, to be that precise and that hard hitting on each hit. So I think I think that's why it sounds, and and yeah, I mean it's there is some compression, but again, like the compression's gonna enhance what's there. Uh, last part of this, if you go to one minute eight seconds, his vocal cuts, uh, the instrumentation drops, and all you hear is his vocal, and it's very clear that there's some kind of processing there, and I'm wondering if you can decipher what that is, if it's a compressor or some other thing. If you ever come late, better give me what I want. I know with his with Tomas' vocal on that album, the it sounds like there's some modulation. I'm gonna guess that that's like an H a, a um an even tied H three thousand. So that's like the chorusy modulation thing, the grit thing that you're talking about on all the songs, or if not all of them, definitely most of them. I I used um, these Dolby A modules. They're basically like a noise reduction. They're used for tape if you want to reduce noise on tape but you can use kind of one part of it. It basically adds like a very high frequency distortion. And so I would run the vocal through that and then I would blend it in with the vocal. And so that's that kind of gritty, that, that's what's giving me the grit on the vocal. Very interesting. I'm gonna squeeze one last alphabetical track in here before we leave it alone. It's called Victim of the Crime. And in the beginning you have these key stabs that are doing like quarter note things and then some bells as well. I'm wondering if you remember what the, where those sounds came from. Yeah, those little bell. I think that's my. I have like a little xylophone. You know, it's like a foot and a half. I don't know. Kind of like a student 
xylophone that you'd see at a school. I've got one of those, and I think that's what that is. Okay. And the key stabs? The blub, the kind of plucky thing? Uh, that's probably a, a Roland JX3P synth. I think this is one of the tracks where the drums are at their most like short and punchy, like very like truncated, but they stick through. Would you say that's more due to this, the groove in the sequence or compression at some latter stage that's making it pump like that? It sounds like I am using like a side stick type sound as the snare sound, which is a little unusual, but it's giving it like that crack. So I don't even know if there's like an actual, like a proper snare sound on there. I think it's just like that crack, that crack sound. I think because of that, it makes it sound punchy. So again, if there was compression, which there probably would have been, but it's not like, it's not like you can, com like keep in mind, like when you compress things, it's usually not going to make things be real punchy in the sense of attack. Not even if you have a slow attack and you let the transients through? I mean, even with a slow attack, yeah. I mean, because I, I, I usually only use a slow attack. If you're compressing a few, you know, three, five, seven, ten dB to hear some compression, like if you're going to, to the point where you really hear the compression, you know, you're, you're clamping down your transient. So it's kind of um, counterintuitive in some ways, like, it's going to mash the quiet bits up with the louder bits. It's going to make things sound more sustained and bigger. But if you go too far to where you're getting that, you're probably killing your transient. So then you got to find out, you've got to do other things to get your transient back with like blending or, um, or whatever distortion, you know? So yeah, I probably wasn't compressing a lot with, with those drums. I see. Last thing about this. So the, the there's this like wall of acoustic guitars, I guess. And I don't really have a specific question. It's more like just how did you, how do you think you built that up? Because it's very dense. So yeah, I mean, there is some acoustic guitar. I think, I think it's maybe the electric guitar, the kind of weird with the backwards stuff that's happening. Yeah, so I think that's electric guitar, and it's just it's one of the guys, maybe Bronco, playing just kind of a, dun, 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 you know, just kind of playing a part like you normally would. This was done a long time ago, so I don't totally remember everything, but I think what we did was we recorded it like we would have, like we would record anything else. He'd play it, and then I probably kept some bits of his performance, and then reversed little bits of it to kind of to manipulate it, and I don't know, just make it weird. Basically, <laughs> in some ways, we're, we're probably trying to make it sound like it was sampled, but it wasn't. It was it was played, but it was heavily manipulated. All right. Um, here we have the Kooks Naive. So the guitar that comes in the beginning has a very chunky consistency to it. And I'm wondering if this is um, just multi mics on the amp or a particular model of amp that make that gives you that. Um, but where does that chunky sort of present? characteristic come from in that guitar so the the guitar is kind of an un unusual guitar it's a um i forgot the guy's first name but trussart is the is it jean trussart i can't remember 
the, the, the first name of Mr. Trussart, but Trussart Guitars, it's, it was a, oh wait, hold on a second though. I don't know if Luke had that. You know what? I don't think it was the Trussart actually. That would have been on the second album. Sorry. It's just a telly. I'm pretty sure it was, it was, it was a telly. Yeah. He, on, on Conk, the next album, he got one of these Trussart guitars that, that we used on the next, uh, that was like heavily used on Conk that had a really unusual sound. But yeah, I think that's just a telly that he had. That telly would have been going through an amp, a Fender Blues Junior, which is just a kind of a, a basic, it's like a 112 amp. It's a newer amp. It's got tubes or valves, as they say in the UK. And I always love, I had one as well. And then it's, and then when I got to London to work with, with the Kooks, Luke had one, ironically. And I'm like, oh man, I love those amps. They're really cool amps. You know, they're 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 not like super loud, but they're they have a really cool sound. So it was just a combo of that telly and that amp and the mics that we use probably was it was probably like a U87, a Neumann U87 with maybe like a Sennheiser 421. So a condenser and a dynamic, basically. Do you remember what might have been on his voice, mic wise? Uh, the mic would have been an SM7, a, a Sure SM7. So not the 57 or 58 that we were talking about earlier. But the one that's um, that looks like a kind of has like the little swivel thing with the foam, big foamy thing on it. Yeah, SM7. Sweet. All right. Uh, we've broken down quite a number of your tracks. Um, thank you for being so accommodating. What do you have going on for the rest of the year? Any particular plans, things, projects you'll be focusing on? Yeah, a bunch of stuff, things, some stuff. I'm finishing a few projects from, I guess, over the summer. Um, I done i've done several productions so i'm now kind of in the process of finishing those and then um and then gearing up for more mixing and and more production later in the year okay which will take place at your austin i guess you're based in austin now yeah i'm based in austin now yeah the majority of it will take place in austin yeah yeah and then that'll take me that'll pretty much take me up to christmas awesome well this has been great um thank you so much for the time yeah my pleasure thanks thanks